Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The first stage of the Tour de France 2020 is in the books. And like everything else that's happened in 2020, it was a memorable one. Not always for the right reasons. We're also going to talk about La Course 2020, the one-day race that the women participated in just before the Tour de France Stage 1 started. We'll do the men's race first because that's freshest in our minds, and then we'll do La Course straight afterwards because, honestly, that was probably the more exciting race and just better all-around racing. How are you going, Benji? How, what's your immediate reaction after Stage 1 of the men's race? It was a Tour de France spectacle, as I would say, in the sense that we saw misery but we also saw happiness it was a one hell of a start to the grand tour and basically it was already quite a feeling of more hype than previous years for me personally i don't know what it is about this year's third of france but i feel much more entangled into it i think it's maybe because we're doing this now that i follow it even more than i already would and i've got a feeling that the stage did deliver but as you said maybe not for the right reasons but We'll go into that in a second once we go through the stage itself. What's your thoughts on the stage? Oh, well, just just as a reminder to people that might not have caught the stage. And, you know, in this, there's going to obviously be spoilers in this podcast. So, yeah, beware of that. But the stage was a rolly stage around Nice, starting in Nice and finishing in Nice. And a lot of these, and it had a few climbs in it, um, not difficult ones, sort of gentle category threes, 5.7 kilometers at 5.1%. If you're familiar with Norton Summit, which is used in the Tour Down Under, very famous climb in Adelaide, it's very similar gradient and length to that. But these climbs in Nice are very narrow and have an exorbitant amount of paint on them and are sort of in an urban area. Then they're actually in quite a, yeah, there's houses all around, narrow roads, etc. And Benji, I'm not in Europe, despite pretending to be so on my live stream. So I don't know how much it's been raining or what the weather's been like, but it looked to me like it was the first day it had rained in a long time in Nice, which is always a recipe for disaster. Um, Now, I may be wrong on that, but it rained and it rained heavily during the middle of this stage. And even at the end, it was still raining a little bit, but heavily in the middle of this stage. And it was absolute carnage benji you took notes just run through all the people you you caught that crashed well firstly before the crashes happened we had a breakaway of three riders that was grillier sharing gautier those guys stayed up front until the rain pretty much happened and they took the k1 points i think Cher's leader now i actually haven't checked the k1 share i think is taking the king of the mountains jersey for ccc tall ccc rider i think he did so in the dauphine as well no, I think so as well. Uh, then we had a little intermediate sprint. We had Sagan fight for that versus Bennett. Sagan took that. But mainly when the rain started, everything pretty much came together. And then everything just went apart. Because once they started going into the second descent of the Côte d'Emier, which was extremely wet due to the rain, we had, first of all, the crash of Quintana and Pustelberger. Quintana pretty much saved himself. He recovered so quickly. 
still on the bike that he never actually hit the ground. So it was honestly quite an insane save from the lad. So awesome work from from Nairo evading that. Honestly, I love when I see a rider evade a crash because, yeah, obviously you don't want to see people crash, but it's also a spectacle if they do it in such a magnificent way. I think Nairo Quintana... Uh, or Nara Quintana fan club or Nara and Green on Twitter. They they shared the video with some editing. Go check that out on Twitter. It's it's crazy. Yeah, it was honestly a, a good video as well indeed. Sivakov then crashed off camera. We didn't know what happened really, but someone reported that Sivakov crashed and that he was suffering at the back. We saw some images that he was two to three minutes behind already. He was downhilling so slowly. It was honestly crazy. But eventually he came back together. In the meanwhile, we had Alaphilippe and Amador crash. I'm not 100% sure that Alaphilippe crashed, but on the race center of the Tour de France, they both stood still in a certain corner, and suddenly we saw that Alaphilippe's front wheel, his brake was stuck, his uh, disc wheel, disc brake, that's what I meant. And then we also had crashes of Nizzolo, Pozzo, Vivo, Kelebun fell twice, Dayenkolb fell, and then again, Sivakov crashed again to get with Arndt, but Sivakov, man, such a poor lad. Honestly, looking at him, he didn't look too good, and... His mental state was like so low at that moment when he crashed the second time. So I hope that he can get that back together and actually get himself back in order for the next couple of stages because those crashes certainly will leave a mark. Then we had Tony Martin in the downhill of the, uh, I think at the downhill ending of the second Rimier or at the start of the third Rimier's downhill. That's when he pretty much said to the rest of the peloton, well, this is where we will neutralize it ourselves. He made a bit of a titanic, I'm the king of the world move and spread his arms. And basically everybody, except Astana, decided to go with that. <laughs> what happened with the Astana thing? You can tell that. <laughs> okay, so as you've mentioned, Tony Martin took it upon himself to neutralize the stage. And Robert Hessink has come out, I've seen on Twitter and, and spoken about how angry he is and the riders were because they believe that the UCI should have neutralized the stage. And you think, oh, I mean, just it's rain riding in the rain is part of cycling why should the UCI neutralize the race because you know just because it's raining and I'd agree with that except for the fact that I saw images and a lot of them of actual soap like dish soap imagine when you go going to do your dishes you fill up the basin and you get some suds going and the bubbles that's what it looked like was all over the road in a lot of those corners. It's all over Twitter. And the riders, you know, if you look at the videos of them crashing, they're going like 25Ks an hour. They're almost, you know, they're going so slowly doing everything they can not to crash. And there's nothing they can do. There's literally no traction because either the roads are greasy, some of those corners had actual soap on them, on the painted lines. Um, there's no, probably no traction there as well. And, it's so narrow, these roads on these descents, that it's almost impossible for people to avoid those painted lines. Just like when Jumbo Visma crashed in the time trial of uh, the Vuelta a España team time trial last year, when there was like water on the road, the minute their front wheel hit that white line, they crashed. But anyway, Martin neutralizes the stage because the UCI didn't. So Jumbo Visma took it upon them, on themselves and thought, there's no use someone losing the Tour de France general classification in the middle of stage one of the Tour de France, before I'd even started my first live stream. But Astana weren't having it. Yoni Zagira was on the side of Tony Martin when he sort of tried to neutralise it, which everyone else seemed to agree with. And Zagira was jawing at him, saying, I presume saying, 
oh, Colin, this is racing, you know, why, why should we, what if we want to attack on the next ascent? Which, I mean, he's entitled to think that. Probably don't agree with it, and the Robbie McEwen certainly didn't agree with it when he on the commentary team for SBS. And the next corner, when I think I don't even know if the neutralization had finished, or I mean, how do you know when a rider's neutralization is finished? Astana kind of attacked on the descent off the front, Izaguirre in front, and Miguel Anel Lopez, their GC leader. Is he locked up his brat? I think was it his back wheel? He locked it up in the corner not even a very tight left-hand corner, and went careening off the road and slammed into a sign. He kind of didn't go down to the ground, but he, which was almost worse, I think, what did happen, which was just hitting this sign at full speed because he lost, he lost control of his bike like an F1 driver when their car starts to spin. There's literally nothing he could do in the wet, and it was instant karma, I guess, for Astana being idiots because... There was nothing to be gained attacking on that descent, really. Um, it wasn't like they were going to TT away for the next 60 kilometres and keep Miguel Angel Lopez and actually gain meaningful time on GC or even win the stage, given the flat run-in. And the whole peloton basically started laughing at them straight away when he came back through the back. Did you, what did you think of the Astana crash whole debacle? I honestly think that it wasn't a, a good move just when it comes to fairness and race that they went ahead and made a move there. But I also find the words on Twitter and such saying karma and such for a crash always a bit harsh because you don't exactly want other people to crash. Obviously, it's a bit karma, but the guy still crashed into a sign. So I always feel a bit mad about such situations. But hey, he wasn't the last person that crashed. We had Bennett crash as well, but that was basically during the neutralization. So it wasn't that the neutralization made sure that crashes didn't happen. So it sure as hell was not because of a magnificent speed that people started crashing. It was just because the road was was like they were riding on ice, pretty much. That's what they said. If you see any of the riders' comments, and a lot of the riders are cranky. I mean, what a, what a hard and difficult start to the Tour de France. Raining, people crashing left, right, and center. You got the stress. You know, Caleb Ewan crashed and was six minutes behind. This is one of the stages... You know, he's done recons at this stage. He lives in the area. They Lotto Sadal would have marked down this stage. The, the day the route was announced last year is one that Ewan was probably going to be one of the favorite. Well, he was the favorite for the stage. And he ends up being six minutes behind the peloton. He eventually catches back up uh, at some point, but what cost it was to him, I'm not sure exactly. It kind of kind of exactly helped his chances. I'm not sure if we missed anyone else that crashed. Robert Hessink crashed fairly heavily, but then he seemed to be fine and back at the head of affairs for Jumbo Visma. Wat Van Aert, even on Twitter, said he went down at some point. Um, it was so probably he, one of the two riders that crashed in that uh, normal road, not the center, flat park. Yeah. Together with uh, So that was all the crashes on the descent. Then they finished the descent. It's about, I don't know, 27 kilometers to go. Pure pancake flat run into the finish. Sprinter's delight. Not even any road furniture, really. The road narrowed in a few places. Not any technical corners. The sprint was a straight line. When did you just... What I want to know is, and I don't think anyone really knows, when when did the neutralization stop? Because everyone was still chilling. Alaphilippe was talking to Roglic for ages on the flat. Egan Bernal was conferring with... 
Kwiatkowski as well on the flat. And then when was the switch, Benji? Was it when De Koenig went on the front and started to drive the pace a little bit that people decided, oh, yeah, we're still actually in a race for a Tour de France stage here? I think so. It was roughly around 25k to go. I don't know whether they had a certain amount in mind or whether they had a certain point in the profile in mind, but they still waited a tiny bit after the descent. So I was so confused. Why are they not riding again? What's happening? How long are they going to wait until they start racing again? Because it's still a Tour de France stage, obviously. So I was kind of waiting on the uh, on the eventual potential attack still, and then a sprint. Well, it kind of happened indeed when Quick Step came to the fore, and also when Cosnefa decided to uh, launch a bit of an attack, but some other people were pacing already at that point. In the end, I am honestly not sure when a rider neutralization ends. Have no bloody clue. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's the problem with a rider-initiated neutralization. And maybe they were wondering when, I don't know, when people were going to catch back up. They were still waiting for people to catch back up off the descent. Maybe they, that probably helped Caleb Ewan catch back up. It was fair to him. Um, but anyway, the, the sprint teams and trains started to assemble. Not Lotus Sudal at that point, but the Koenig Quickstep were going on the front, I think, Tim de Klerk or Casper Askren came later. But yeah, Quickstep were on the front. They were riding for Sam Bennett. Bora Hansgrohe had a, a good numbers for Peter Sagan. Who else was there? CCC had good good numbers. Trek and even Kofidis as well. So it seemed to be a return to normalcy with about 22Ks to go. Still wet. And I want to bear in mind at this stage, yes, there's been stress of all the crashes, etc. But physically, probably one of the easiest Tour de France stages that they'll ever be given the, the profile. Sorry, given that there were hills, but the descents were completely neutralised and a lot of the teams weren't pressing on full gas on the climb and there wasn't really a breakaway to catch either except, you know, the Cosnefroy attack. So... For riders like Case, Bowl, etc., who, and I won't spoil, we'll get to who won the stage in the end, but I think it suited riders who do well in easy stages, like Bowl, like Fabio Jakobsen, I think would have done really, really well in today's stage if he hadn't, if he'd been in, in the mix at the end. Because they've pretty much been chilling it, not even pedaling for half an hour. And as long as you can withstand the cold and the rain, it's like a recce ride, and then you're going to do one max sprint at the end. Well, I agree with that. I've got the opinion that it's also according to the circumstances, because the first two riders in this stage will get to that, apparently. But those two riders are really known to be good in rainy stages and stages with bad circumstances. So to have them come out on top in a stage like this doesn't feel like a com- uh, coincidence to me. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's just just so odd and such a strange stage given that I thought the Hills were going to make a real a real dent on riders like Bowl, etc. But anyway, the, the lead-out started, but then Quickstep kind of, they've had an inconsistent lead-out, I've felt, so far this season. And FDJ have, I think, been the most dominant lead-out train in, in pro cycling at the moment. I think you agree with that. You've said similar things yourself, Benji. Um, when they've gone head-to-head, FTJ swamped the Koenig. And yep. Benoit Kosnefra went off the front. 
clashed well the Mondial. Everyone was confused. Well, I was particularly confused because I thought, well, it was a suicide break, basically. There was zero chance with 15 Ks to go, a flat run into the finish. Sprinters' teams completely rested that Cosner Fire was going to stay off the front. But, you know, that's, that's what some riders do. It makes no sense to me, given that there's other stages and profiles that suit him more. But, anyway, maybe some free TV time for two minutes, and then he immediately got caught. And then Ineos came to the front. Jumbo Visma came to the front. Ineos looked very good. They did what they do. They up there going for that three kilometers to go where apparently times were going to be taken. Or normally three Ks to go is where if there's a crash, you get the same time as everybody. But apparently the UCI said with three Ks to go, that is where the GC times were going to be taken. Ineos came to the front. They had pretty good representation except for no Sivakov, I don't think, and kept Benal safe. Yumbo Vism did as well. They had six men. And then, do you know what happened, Benji? Then they just disappeared with like six, yep. seven Ks to go. They had six men on the front, including Martin and Wout Van Aert. Roglic nicely tucked in sixth next to Ineos. And then all of a sudden, there was just Wout Van Aert left at the front. Did you, do you have any idea what happened? They indeed split up into like two parts. We had Tony Martin and Wout Van Aert still at the front. And the other three were basically... Roglic and two companions at the back of the group. I think that was for the fact that those three were supposed to just rest it out for the rest of the stage in the sense that Roglic must survive the stage and then also have Wout van Aert potentially sprint for it. And eventually he tried that, but he had a bit of an issue in the sprint that he basically got blocked and lost 30 to 20 positions just by that say exact moment. He was really unlucky there and he basically gave up on that sprint and that's why we didn't see Wout van Aert at the end today. But it did seem, I mean, this was what everyone was, the big debate, and, and Jumbo Visma have been saying in the media, no, 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 Wout van Aert's not going for stages. Maybe stage 21 on Champs-Élysées, say. But when it came down to it, with Ewan maybe not not up to it, Tony Martin did lead out Wout van Aert and give him a, you know, try and put him into good position. Uh, and it did seem that Wout van Aert was actually going to contest that sprint. And as you said, didn't work out for him. I want to talk about what happened in the last two kilometers. Quick step were there. Kasper and As- sorry, Kasper and Askren. Kasper Askren, the Danish national champion, did a really long pull for Quick Step. Sunweb actually had a really good lead out for Case Bowl. But then it was, I think, Jack Bauer for Michigan Scott, who, as they came through under the Flamme Rouge, or just around one kilometer to go, he was leading out for Luca Metzgetz, the for Michigan Scott. Bauer just started sprinting really, really early and actually got a gap on the peloton. And then Sagan chased onto his wheel, and this is with quite a long way to go still in the sprint, way too early for Sagan to try and then slipstream Bauer and and sprint over the top of him. Mezgetz was on Sagan's wheel. Bauer pulls off. Sagan realizes he's on the right-hand side near the barriers. Oh, no, I... I, (laughs) I can't start sprinting now. He's got no lead out in front of him. He looks around. I think Daniel Oss or whoever was for Bora hadn't dropped Sagan off in a particularly good position, actually. And then he got swamped. He got swamped through the middle. It was Kofidis and Viviani who tried to come up the middle, and they were squeezed. He was in the same sort of area as Sagan. Mads Pedersen was just behind Sagan. And Case Bowl and Kristoff, Case ball slid up the middle of the peloton, getting a, a lovely draft from everybody. 
when there was a bit of momentum coming out of it before everyone had started their sprint, Old, who's a very, very big rider, you know, one over 1.9 meters, over 80 kilograms, I think, for Sunweb, started to sprint quite early, but got very good separation from the rest of the riders. Bennett didn't have the best wheel to sit on. I think he got pinched as well, and I don't think he had fantastic legs either. Ewan got blocked, and he'd been chasing all day. Old starts to sprint early. I thought he was going to win and make me look like an idiot after my Tour de France betting preview. And then Alexander Kristoff. I'd encourage you guys, if they, if you can see the over, overhead helicopter footage, um, the extended shot, look at how Alexander Kristoff manages to draft wheels all the way up and how he manages to flare his elbows for the entirety of the last 600 metres. It's a masterclass in staying on wheels, fighting for your position, not letting your front wheel get chopped whilst people are trying to come and claim a wheel off you and keeping momentum at the same time. In the saddle, when Bol was sprinting, Christoph was able to get behind him and without even sprinting, pretty much hold his wheel. And then in about four or five pedal strokes, going to the right-hand side of Bol on the barrier, Christoph distanced him and slid in easily to win win the stage. I was surprised, but yeah, the helicopter shot will show it all. Mads Pedersen, I think, came second, who... Did a similar thing to Christoph, who was just in a good position and sprinted at the right time. Did you see anything else interesting in that sprint? Or did I miss anything there, Benji? I know we just watched it um, and I might have missed something. Is there anything else in that sprint you think was noteworthy? I think that's basically what happened. Bennett in there went past everybody with about, I think it was like 400 meters ago when you said that Sagan was looking behind him. And he also basically just tanked in the last 50 meters when Bull went. So. In general, a pretty masterful sprint by Kristoff. But one thing I noticed, well, two things I noticed is, first of all, there was also a crash with 1K to go. Can we talk about oh, the yeah. important rider that, um, that unfortunately crashed? Well, let's finish the sprint first. Okay, let's talk about the sprint. We saw Pogacar sprint. Did you notice that? No, I didn't. Local wide, really? but he was sprinting 17th. Sergio Aguita? <laughs> Sergio Aguita was top group. 20, I believe. Um, yeah, indeed. Those two were the rather odd names in the sense that Higita has done this before, but Pogachar didn't really need to be there because yeah, the last three kilometer rule even counted with normal time neutralizations today. So yeah. Yeah. So I'll read out the top ten for everybody. Alexander Kristoff, the Norwegian winner of Tour of Flanders, he came first. I think the first time he's worn the yellow jersey, which he'll wear tomorrow. I haven't I can't remember how long it was until a uh, Norwegian rider wore a yellow jersey in the Tour de France, or if it's ever happened before, but uh, a massive moment for Christoph. Maz Pedersen second, world champion. Case Ball third, Sam Bennett fourth, Peter Sagan fifth. I believe Sagan will wear the green jersey tomorrow because he also uh, took the intermediate sprint points. Olivia Viviani sixth, Nizzolo seventh. Good, I think a really good result for Nizzolo to actually be yeah. contesting that sprint. The NTT lead-out train looked really good, just quietly. You know, Gibbons, Gibbons did a really good job. I think the NTT train was quite good. And, and Nitsola was clutching his stomach earlier in the stage. And I think he, like, not not an ideal lead-up to that sprint. And to get seventh was really good. Brian Cockard, eighth. Anthony Turgis, uh, ninth. So good work from the, the French Pro Conti teams. Jesper Stoyven, tenth. And, yeah, that's pretty much it. Caleb Ewan, 19th. So, yeah, pr- Disappointing stage for Ewan, one he would have earmarked, but that was the top 10. 
Christoph has looked terrible <laughs> before today. He's not yeah, shown he he's not shown anything in any of the other state, only any of the tune up races. And he just slides through on experience in the cold, in the rain, on a miserable day to take the yellow jersey and win stage one of the 2020 Tour de France. But yeah, Benji, rem- let us know what happened in that crash. I think just at three Ks to go. Yeah, it was three Ks to go. I said 1K to go earlier, but it was indeed three Ks to go. Just to win about 2.9K actually, because that's really important for the three kilometer rule. And we had Pinot down and quite a few other riders, but the most notable name was Thibaut Pinot down, one of the GC favorites for this Tour de France. So very, very disappointing to see his face at that point. Like that was the face of a man that just lost the war. Honestly, he was so sad that he crashed. And he basically looked depressed following that until he crossed the finish line with his whole squad together. So in the end, he most likely shouldn't lose any time. It's not updated on the results page yet, but considering it was within the last three kilometers, he should be placed in the same time as the first lads that crossed the line. Yeah, he wasn't, Pino wasn't holding his collarbone. I mean, obviously, you don't, no one wants to crash, etc. but he didn't look to be too badly injured. I hope he isn't injured. Obviously, I want Pino to win this Tour de France. He should have known he wouldn't have been losing any time. And he was gesticulating and acting like it was, you know, the end of the world just about. Um, whereas Alaphilippe crashed at least once and just sort of got on got on with life. So I think, yeah, Pino just got to chill out. I know it's a bad day, but it's a bad day for Ineos. It's a bad day for Jumbo Visma. It just is a bad day for pretty much everyone except Alexander Kristoff and Mads Pedersen and Case Boll and Peter Sagan. So, yeah, just chalk it up as a bad day for everybody. Get on with tomorrow. Hopefully tomorrow is a better day for Pino. And there's going to be, I think, GC action tomorrow. But, yeah, that was the stage one of the 2020 Tour de France. As with everything in 2020, extremely unpredictable with the rain affecting the race a lot. Some of you are probably wondering if I want to backtrack on my case bowl prediction of him not winning a stage in this tour. I don't think so. I think today was a very unusual stage because of the self-imposed neutralizations. I think that, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, that had the effect of making it quite an easy stage if you hadn't crashed um, compared to a typical Tour de France stage or easier and in the last 40 kilometers, the TSS would have been very, very low compared to what they would have been expecting. And Caseball got to sit on his train and sit in a flat, you know, a pretty much a pancake flat lead out with not very much wind for 20 kilometers and then do a max effort sprint, which I don't disagree. He's very good at that, that sort of sprint. Um, but that was not a normal stage. And I think... In the other sprint stages with fatigue in the legs, I think you will be seeing you and in the typical guys we expect up there. But yeah, congrats to Christoph, just savvy vet taking the win when everyone else is having a bad day. Anything else before we get on to move on to La Course, Benji? I'd like to give a small recap on what is coming tomorrow when it comes to stage two. So we've got a pretty hilly terrain. We've got knees to knees once again. Two mountains in the middle, that's Col de Colmiana and Col de Turini, so big climbs, and then towards the end, Col d'Ez. And basically, just before the finish line, we've got Col de Quatre-Chemins, which is the Col d'Ez, but they stop a bit before the top and go downwards towards the finish line. So a pretty cool terrain tomorrow. I'm looking forward to it. I'm pretty sure Lantern is looking forward to it as well. 
yeah, it's going to be a really one of the most exciting, or should be one of the most exciting second stages in the tour in recent recent memory. And I'm just seeing on Twitter now, sorry, Benji, I just saw on Twitter now that John Degenkolb apparently missed the time cut and he's outside the time wow. limit. Now, I mean, the UCI is typically, or the commissaires are not typically that kind, even if there are extenuating circumstances, given that Jumbo Visma had to, like, fight for Tony Martin to not be outside the time cut in the Dauphiné hail stage. But, yeah, I'm seeing that on Twitter. I think Laflamme Rouge tweeted that. So not great for Caleb Ewan's lead-out to be missing John Degenkolb. I also noticed just a second ago that Pavel Sivakov actually ended on 13 minutes after crashing twice, which is basically a scratch to his GC if it wasn't already for the crash itself. So he's pretty much gone as well. And... I noticed that Wout Pools lost time today, so that's basically most likely meaning that he's losing time on purpose like he did for Sky and Ineos in the past, so that doesn't really surprise me. But it does make clear that he's not going for GC himself, but all out going for Landa or for stage wins in the future. I kind of think Wout Pools will be going for stage wins. I think he'll get freedom to go for a couple of stage wins, but I think that's a better idea than, you know, Landa realistically has a very, very low chance of winning the Tour. But, yeah, we'll talk more about GC in the relevant stages. Let's move on to La Course, 96 kilometres long. A lot of the women or female riders were, you know, complaining justifiably, like, why can't we have a longer race? Van Vleuten's complained about that, I think, for their GP Plouet as well or European Championships. You know, why can't they have a longer race? But it is what it is. We'll talk about the race as it happened. Again, it had two climbs of the Astramor, similar to the men's race, 6.7 kilometers long at 3.1%, and a breakaway went on the descent, I think initiated by Kazianuvia Doma and yep. for uh, Kenyon Schram. In this breakaway was Mariana Voss for CCC. She needs no introduction. Demi Vollering for Paco Talvalkenberg, up-and-coming Dutch rider, really strong rider. Katrinia Nuvia Doma, Polish rider for Kenyon Schram. Annemiek van Vleuten, the world champ and European champ for Mitchell and Scott. Alisa Longo-Borghini, the Italian rider for Trek Segafredo, extremely strong rider, and Lizzie Dignan, who just won GP Plouet in front of Lizzie Banks uh, about four or five days ago. She's also riding for Trek Segafredo alongside Lisa Longo-Borghini. So can, you know, considering that there's Demi Vollering, Mariana Voss, you'd back them in a sprint. Lizzie Dignan's a pretty good sprinter on a day as well. I don't know why Nivea Diamond didn't attack because... Annemiek van Vleuten, she knew that she wasn't as strong in the sprint as those other riders, uh, particularly Mariana Voss. She knows the strength of Voss well, obviously. Van Vleuten spent me, you know, many occasions trying to attack, even in the last kilometre or so, which ruled her out for the sprint. Trek played this absolutely perfectly. And I think maybe van Vleuten was a little bit too worried about Nuvia Doma because Nuvia Doma was sitting on the entire time and... Demi Vollering was like third wheel in the so in the rotation. Longaborghini was doing a little bit more work because she had two riders for Trek and now she was riding for Diagnan in the sprint. They they had like ninety seconds on the peloton, so they knew as long as they didn't muck around too much, they were going to stay away. But Demi Vollering was hanging around like third or fourth wheel, and Van Vleuten would go to the back. Nuvia Doma would push her through because Nuvia Doma wasn't pulling a turn. And then when it got to real, you know, the crunch time, the last four kilometers or so, where it was clear they weren't going to get caught, Demi Vollering kept losing the wheel a little bit, and it just put more pressure, I think, on Van Vleuten, who was already tired from attacking a couple of times or more than a couple of times. But anyway, Longo Borghini 
attacked rather than trying to lead just lead out Lizzie Diagon for the sprint, which you're probably maybe wondering why isn't it better for Longo Bordaghini to just sit on the front and pull the brake, have you know Lizzie Diagon in the second wheel, and then she can sprint, and then you know then she can contest the sprint, and the obvious answer to that is because that benefits Mariana Voss just as much as Lizzie Dugan. Mariana Voss can then just sit on Longo Borghini and has just as good a chance or probably a better chance of beating Dugan. Instead, this forced Mariana Voss to close down Longo Borghini. It all came back together again. There's maybe a oh, 1,500 metres to two kilometres to go or just under. Great work from Longo Borghini, by the way. And this was the moment where I thought it would have been perfect for Nivea Doma to counterattack. I think Annemiek van Vleuten had a last-ditch attack into the last kilometre or so. She got brought back, I think, again by Voss or maybe Longo Borghini. Yeah. No, it was Voss because Longo Borghini was slightly off the back. Then yes. Diagnan went on the front, completely slowed it down. She didn't start sprinting too early or feel compelled to open up her sprint. They slowed to a crawl, and it caused Longo Borghini to catch back up again she then attacked absolutely fantastic teamwork. Now, I don't know whether Diagon knew Longo Borghini was catching back up or not, but regardless, what Longo Borghini did, she's the reason why Trek won this race. She starts a sprint, you know, in vain probably, but it causes Mariana Voss to open up her sprint too early. You can see this in the last kilometer highlights on the Tour de France channel. Voss opens up her sprint too early, getting onto the, the wheel of Longo Borghini. Diagon immediately snaps on to Mariana Voss's wheel, they gap pretty much everyone else, but I think Demi Vollering did a pretty good sprint to come third. Voss keeps it going, she's so strong, and then Diagnan, it was hard to know where the line was, we couldn't really see because the camera was so zoomed in on Voss and, and Diagnan on her wheel, but just at the end, and I think Voss's bike throw was better than Diagnan, but Diagnan won by what, three inches, if that, on the yeah, line, pretty close. two inches on the line. About a tire, you know, the, the space of her tire to Mariana Voss, her second big win in the space of a week. Great teamwork from Trek Segafredo, an incredibly exciting finish to La Course, which delivers every year, by the way. Um, 2018 and 2019 were fantastic races as well. So that it was Dagnan first, Voss second, Bollering third, Nivea Doma fourth, Van Vleuten fifth, Longo Borghini sixth, and then. Uh, Amelia Farlin for the Swedish rider for FDJ won the bunch sprint. Benji, was there anything in the finale that you picked up on or you found particularly interesting? I believe that I've got the same feeling towards that Trexegafredo tactic that you were talking about in the sense that it really baited out Mariana Voss there. Elisa Longoborghini, she came at the perfect moment, whether Dagnan knew it or not, nobody knows but themselves. And obviously when it comes to the support that Dagnan has from the team car, with Bronzini and Teutenberg, then they definitely know how to beat Mariana Voss at certain points, but it worked out perfectly, I hear. Demi Vollering, I was really impressed with her coming third, given that she didn't look that great in the break and could barely pull turns in the last sort of 12 to 15 kilometers. I was a little bit confused by what Nuvia Doman's tactics were because she was, maybe she was just really tired and that's why she wasn't pulling any turns and pushing through Van Vleuten, but I thought it was part of a plan to save herself for an attack later, but that didn't eventuate. But this is a great preview for the Giro Rosa, which is the sort of the pinnacle of stage racing for women's cycling that's going to be happening this year. I can't wait for that. We'll see all the big names, all these sort of names 
at the Giro Rosa, obviously won by Annemiek van Vleuten, pretty dominant fashion uh, last year. I don't know why they call it the Giro d'Italia Internazionale Femminile, but yeah, Giro Rosa is what I know it as. She's going to be the hot favourite for, for it this year. I think she's riding the Bulls Ladies Tour, but yeah, that starts on the 11th of September. So that'll be during the Tour de France, the Giro Rosa. So we'll have a lot <laughs> a lot to keep up on when that happens. But yeah, any other thoughts, Benji, on the women's or men's races? Okay, when it comes to La Course, a last note was that I was slightly disappointed in the sense that Uther Ludwig wasn't really there. She dropped when Annemiek van Vleuten pretty much exploded on the Côte d'Irmier. And I felt like knowing her riding style and her recent results and such, I expected a tiny bit more, but... Seems like she either didn't have the legs or just exploded her legs on that climb itself. Yeah, maybe Uttar Ludwig was a little bit tired from Giro dell'Emilia and European champs, etc. Although the other riders have done the same. All right, I think that's going to be all for today. We'll try to keep it under 40 minutes. Congrats to Lizzie Dignan. Congrats to Alexander Christoph. Thank you for all the support of the podcast so far. We've been overwhelmed by it and how well it's going. We're going to keep it rolling every day for the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia, etc., into the distance, into the future. But if you do like it, it helps out so much if you could provide a review or just a rating, really, not even a written review on your podcast player. Benji, last thoughts. You've got five seconds before we sign off and I go to sleep. Thank you very much for listening. Ciao. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 